Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Money Podcast Unanswered Questions where every week we'll endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the man in the iron mask. Now the man in the iron mask who died on the 19th of November 1703 was an unidentified prisoner of state arrested in July of 1669 under the pseudonym of Shi. Dalga, I'm sorry if I get that name wrong, and incarcerated for a period of 34 years during the reign of King Louis XIV of France, 1643 to 1715 respectively. Known for remaining unidentified throughout his time in prison, he was held in the custody of the same jailer, and I'm going to butcher this number to apologise, Benegine Dove Green de Saint Mars in four successive French prisons, including the Bastille. When he died there on the 19th of November 1703, his inhumation certificate bore the pseudonym of, and I'm going to butcher this name, Marshally. The true identity of this prisoner remains a mystery, even though it has been extensively debated by historians and various theories have been expounded in numerous books, articles, plays and films. Among the leading theories is one proposed by the French philosopher and writer Voltaire, who claimed in the second edition of his Questions sur Encyclopédie in 1771 that the prisoner was an older, illegitimate brother of Louis XIV. This assertion of a royal connection was echoed later by authors who proposed variants of this aristocratic solution. What little is known about the prisoner is based on contemporary documents that surfaced during the 19th century, mainly some of the correspondence between St. Mars and his superiors, in which the prisoner had been labelled only a valet shortly after his arrest. Legend has it that no one is known to have seen his face, as it was hidden by a mask of black velvet cloth, later misreported by Voltaire as an iron mask. Official documents reveal, however, that the prisoner was made to cover his face only when travelling from one prison to the next, or in the final years of his incarceration. Modern historians believe the latter measure was imposed by St. Mars solely to increase his own prestige at the end of his career, thus causing persistent rumours to circulate about this seemingly important prisoner. In 1932, French historian Maurice Duvier proposed that the prisoner was Eustache Dogged de Cavoy, a nobleman associated with several political scandals of the late 17th century. Sorry if I get any of these names wrong. This solution, however, was disproved in 1953 based on previously unpublished family letters located by another French historian, Georges Mongridian, who added that the enigma remained unsolved owing to the lack of reliable historical documents about the prisoner's identity and the cause of his long incarceration. The Man in the Iron Mask has been the subject of many works of fiction, most prominently in the late 1840s by Alexandre Dumas, a section of his novel, the, and I'm going to butcher this name, the Vicomte 
of Bragelone, ten years later, the final instalment of his, which is this name again, De Art and Ganon Saga, features the man in the iron mask. In it, the prisoner is forced to wear an iron mask and is portrayed as Louis XIV's identical twin. Dumas also presented a review of the popular theories about the prisoner extant in his time in the chapter, quote, and I'm going to butcher this name, El Homme et un Masque de Feu. End quote. Published in the eighth volume of his non-fiction series, Crimes Celebres. This panoramic approach was adopted by many subsequent authors, and speculative works have continued to appear on the subject. Now we come to the prisoner himself, the arrest and the imprisonment. The earliest surviving records of the masked prisoner are from late July 1669, when Louis XIV's minister, the Marquis de Lovis, sent a letter to Benin-Jean Dagovine de Saint-Mars, governor of the prison of Pignerol, which at the time was part of France. In his letter, Lavois informed St. Mars that a prisoner named Eustache Hidalgo was due to arrive in the next month or so. Louis XIV instructed St. Mars to prepare a cell with multiple doors, one closing upon the other, which would prevent anyone from the outside listening in. St. Mars was to see Duga only once a day to provide food and whatever else he needed. Dalgo was to be told that if he, Dalgo, spoke of anything other than his immediate needs, he would be killed, but according to Lavois, the prisoner should not require much since he was only a valet. Historians have noted that the name Eustache Dalga was written in a handwriting different from that used in the rest of the letter's text, suggesting that a clerk wrote the letter under Lavos's dictation while someone else, very likely Lavos, added the name afterwards. Dalga was arrested by Captain Alexandre de Varoy, garrison commander of Dunkirk, and taken to Pignerol when he arrived in late August. Evidence has been produced to suggest that the arrest was actually made in Calais, and that not even the local governor was informed of the event, Voray's absence being explained away by his hunting for Spanish soldiers who had strayed into France via the Spanish Netherlands. The first rumours of the prisoner's identity, specifically as a marshal of France, began to circulate at this point. Now we get into the masked man serving as a valet. The prison at Pignerol, like the others at which Dalga was later held, was used for men who were considered an embarrassment to the state and usually held only a handful of prisoners at a time. St. Mars's other prisoners at Pignerol included Count Ercole Antonio Mattioli, an Italian diplomat who had been kidnapped and jailed for double-crossing the French over the purchase of the important fortress town of Casale on the Italian border. There was also Nicholas Fouricute, Marcus of Belle-Ile, a former superintendent of finances who had been jailed by Louis XIV on the charge of embezzlement, and the Marquise de Lausanne, who had become engaged to the Duchess of Montpensier, a cousin of the king without the king's consent. Falquet's cell was above that of Lausanne. In his letter to Lavoie, St. Mars describes Dalgo as a quiet man living no trouble, disposed to the will of God and to the king compared to his other prisoners, who were always complaining, constantly trying to escape, or simply mad. Dalgo was not always isolated from the other prisoners. Wealthy and important ones usually had manservants. Falcott, for instance, was served by a man called La Riviere. These servants, however, would become as much prisoners as their masters, and it was thus difficult to find people willing to volunteer for such an occupation. Because La Riviere was often ill, Saint Mars applied for permission for Dalgo to act as servant for Falcott. In 1675, Lavos gave permission for such an arrangement on condition that he was to serve Falcott only while La Riviere was unavailable and that he was to not meet anyone else. For instance, if Falquette and Laram were to meet, Dalga was not to be present. 
It is important to point that the man in the mask served as a valet, Falkett was never expected to be released, thus meeting Dalga was no great matter, but Lauzen was expected to be set free eventually and it would have been important not to have him spread rumours of Dalga's existence or of secrets he might have known. Historians have also argued that 17th century protocol made it unthinkable that a gentleman, let alone an aristocrat, would serve as a manservant, casting some doubt on speculation that Dalga was in some way related to the king. After Falkett's death in 1680, St. Mark discovered a secret hole between Falquette and Lazan's cells. He was sure that they had communicated through this hole without detection by him or his guards, and thus that Lausanne must have been aware of Dalga's existence. Lavos instructed St. Mars to move Lausanne to Falquette's cell and tell him that Dagger and La Riviere had been released. Now we get into the other prisons. Lausanne was freed in 1681. Later that same year, St. Mars was appointed governor of the prisons of the Exiles Fort, now Exiles in Italy. He went there, taking Dalga and La Riviere with him. La Riviere's death was reported in January of 1687. In May, St. Mars and Dalga moved to St. Marguerite, one of the Lurins Islands, half a mile offshore from Cairns. It was during the journey to St. Marguerite that rumours spread that the prisoner was wearing an iron mask. Again, he was placed in a cell with multiple doors. On the 18th of September 1698, Saint Mars took up his new post as governor of the Bastille prisons in Paris, bringing Dalga with him. He was placed in a solitary cell in the prefurbished third changer of the, and I'm going to butcher this name, Bert Aduri Tower. The prison's second-in-command, D. Rizages, was to feed him. Lieutenant Du Junka, another officer of the Bastille, noted that the prisoner wore a mask of black velvet. The masked prisoner died there on the 19th of November 1703 and was buried the next day under the name of Marshalie. In 1711, King Louis' sister-in-law, Elizabeth Charlotte, Princess Palatine, sent a letter to her aunt, Sophia Electress of Hanover, stating that the prisoner had two musketeers that decided to kill him if he removed his mask. She described him as very devout and stated that he was well-treated and received everything he desired. However, the prisoner had already been dead for eight years by, the point, by that point, and the princess had not necessarily seen him by herself. Rather, she was quite likely reporting rumours she'd heard at court. Now we get into the popular interest in this case. The fate of the mysterious prisoner and the extent of the apparent precautions his jailers took created significant interest in his story and gave birth to many rumours and legends. Many theories exist about his identity and the cause of his incarceration, and a very large number of books and articles have been written about the case during the last 350 years. Some of these theories were presented after the existence of reliable contemporary documents was widely known. Still, some commentators have presented their own theories, some of them based on embellished versions of the original tale. Theories about his identity that were popular during his time included that he was Marshal of France, the English Henry Cromwell, son of Oliver Cromwell, or Francus Francos, Duke of Beaufort. Later, many authors such as Voltaire and Alexander Dumas suggested other theories about the man in the mask. Now we're going to get into possible candidates of who the man in the iron mask was. First, we have King's relative, Volatier claimed that the prisoner was a son of Anne of Austria and Cardinal Mazarin, and therefore an illegitimate half-brother of Louis XIV. However, the sincerity of this claim is uncertain. Now we come to the king's brother. In a 1965 essay, Le Masque de French novelist Marcel Pangol, Pagnol, supporting his hypothesis in particular on the circumstances of Louis XIV's birth, claims that the man in the Iron Mask was indeed a twin but born second and hence the younger and would have been hidden in order to avoid any dispute over the throne holder. At the time, there was a controversy over which one of twins was the elder, the one born first or the one born second, who was then thought to have been conceived first. 
The historians who reject this hypothesis, including Jean Christian Pitifils, highlight the conditions of childbirth for the Queen. It usually took place in the presence of multiple witnesses, the main court's figures. But according to Marcel Pagnol, immediately after the birth of the future Louis XIV, Louis the 13th took his whole court to the Chateau de Saint Germain's Chapel to celebrate a tedium in great pomp, contrary to the common practice of celebrating it several days before childbirth. Aligned with the hypothesis of Louis XIV having had a twin, a thorough examination of the French king's genealogy shows many twin births in the Capitaine dynasty, as well as in the House of Valais, the House of Bourbon, and the House of Orleans. Alexander Dumas explored a similar hypothesis in his book The Vitcom de Bragelonne, where the prisoner was indeed an identical twin of Louis XIV. This book has served as a basis, even if loosely adapted, for many film versions of the story. According to Marcel Pagnol's hypothesis, his twin was then born in 1638 and grew up on the island of Jersey under the name James de la Cloche. He would supposedly later conspire with Roque de Marseille against Louis XIV and be arrested in Cullis in 1669. Now we get into the rumour of the King's father. In 1955, Hugh Ross Williamson argued that the man in the Iron Mask was the natural father of Louis XIV. According to this theory, the miraculous birth of Louis XIV in 1638 would have come after Louis XIII had been estranged from his wife Anne of Austria for 14 years. The theory then suggests that Cardinal Richelieu, the King's minister, had arranged for a substitute, probably an illegitimate son or grandson of Henry IV, to become intimate with the Queen and father at here in the King's stead. At the time, the heir presumptive was Louis XIII's brother, Gaston, Duke of Orleans, who was Richelieu's enemy. If Gaston became king, Richelieu would quite likely have lost both his job as minister and his life, and so it was in his best interest to thwart Gaston's ambitions. Supposedly, the substitute father then left for the Americas, but in the 1660s returned to France with the aim of extorting money for keeping his secret, and was promptly imprisoned. This theory would explain the secrecy surrounding the prisoner whose true identity would have destroyed the legitimacy of Louis XIV's claim to the throne had it been revealed. This theory was notably disputed by British politician Hugh Cecil, first Baron of Quickswood. He said the idea has no historical basis and is hypothetical. Williamson held that to say it as a guess, with no solid historical basis, is merely to say that it was like every other theory on the matter, although it makes more sense than any of the other theories. There is no known evidence that this is incompatible with it, even the age of the prisoner, which Cecil had considered a weak point, and it explains every aspect of the mystery. Now we come to the French general aspect. In 1890, Louis Gendron, a French military historian, came across some coded letters and passed them on to, and I'm going to butcher this name, Etienne Baziris in the French Army's cryptographic department. After three years, Baziris managed to read some messages in the great cipher of Louis XIV. One of them referred to a prisoner and identified him as General Vivien de Boulond. One of the writers written by Lavos made specific reference to de Boulond's crime. At the siege of Cuneo in 1691, Bulondi was concerned about enemy troops arriving from Austria in order to hasty withdrawal, leaving behind his munitions and wounded men. Louis XIV was furious, and in another of the letters specifically ordered him to be conducted to the fortress at Pignerol, where he would be locked in a cell and under guard at night, and permitted to walk the battlements during the day with a 330309. It has been suggested that the 330 stood for mask and the 309 for full stop. However, in 17th century French, avec un masque would mean in a mask. 
Some believe that the evidence of the letters mean that there is now little need of an alternative explanation for the man in the mask. Other sources, however, claim that Bulondi's arrest was no secret and was actually published in a newspaper at the time and that he was released after just a few months. His death is also recorded as happening in 1709, six years after that of the man in the mask. Now we come to the valet theory. In 1801, revolutionary legislator Pri Rox Fazilic stated that the tale of the masked prisoner was an amalgamation of the fates of two separate prisoners, first being Iricol Antonio Matoli and an imprisoned valet named Eustachi Diago. Lang, 1903, presented a theory that Eustachi Diagio was a prison pseudonym of a man called Martin, valet of the Huguenot Rocks de Marsili. After his master's execution in 1669, the valet was taken to France, possibly by abduction. A letter from the French foreign minister had been found rejecting an offer to arrest Martin. He was simply not important. No one, in 1988, pointed out that the minister was concerned Dalga should not communicate rather than his face should be concealed. Later, St. Mars elaborated upon instructions that the prisoner should not be seen during transportation. The idea of keeping Dalga in a velvet mask was St. Mars's own to increase his self-importance. What Dalga had seen or done is still a mystery. In 2016, the American historian Paul Sonino suggested that Eustachi Dalga could have been a valet of Cardinal Marazin's treasurer, Anthony Hercule Pecon, a native from, and I'm going to butcher this name, Lang Yudok. Pecon, upon entering the service of Colbert after Marazin's death, might have picked up a valet from Senlis where the name Dalga abounds. In his book, Sonino asserts that Marazin led a double life, one as a statements, the other as a loan shark, and that one of the clients he embezzled was Henrietta Maria, the widow of Charles I of England. According to Sonino's theory, Louis XIV was complicit and instructed his ambassador in England to stonewall Charles II over the return of his parents' possessions. In 1669, however, Louis wanted to Charles in a war against the Dutch and therefore worried about the subject of Marazin's estate entering into the negotiations. Sonino concludes by stating that Eustachie Dalga, who might have been Pecon's valet, was arrested and incarcerated for revealing something about the disposition of Marazin's fortune and that this is why he was threatened with death if he discussed anything about his past. In 2021, the British historian Josephine Wilkinson supported the theory proposed earlier by Jean Christian Pettifils, whereby the prisoner was a valet, perhaps to Henrietta of England, who had committed some indiscretion which risked compromising the relations between Louis XIV and Charles II at a sensitive time during the negotiations of the Secret Treaty of Dover against the Dutch Republic. In July 1669, Louis had suddenly and inexplicably fallen out with Henrietta, and since the two had previously been very close, it didn't go unnoticed. Wilkinson and therefore suggested a link between this event and this valet's arrest in Cullis later that month under the pseudonym of Eustachi Dalga. Now we come to the next person who could possibly have been the man in the iron mask, that being son of Charles II. Barnes, 1908, presents James de la Clotchy, the alleged illegitimate son of the reluctant Protestant Charles II of England, who would have been his father's secret intermediary with the Catholic Court of France. One of Charles's confirmed illegitimate sons, the Duke of Monmouth, has also been proposed as the man in the mask. A Protestant, he led a rebellion against his uncle, the Catholic King James II. The rebellion failed and Monmouth was executed in 1685. 
But in 1768, a writer named Saint Foyex claimed that another man was executed in his place and that Monmouth became the masked prisoner, it being in Louis XIV's interest to assist a fellow Catholic like James, who would not necessarily want to kill his own nephew. Saint Foyex's case was based on unsubstantiated rumours and allegations that Monmouth's execution was faked. The next possibility for the identity of the masked man was an Italian diplomat. Another candidate much favoured in the 1800s was Foykit's fellow prisoner Count, and I'm going to butcher this name, Urco Antonio Matiloi, or Matoli, who was an Italian diplomat who acted on behalf of the debt-ridden Charles IV, Duke of Mantua in 1678, in selling Cassel, a strategic fortified town near the border with France. I'm sorry if I get any of these names wrong. A French occupation would be unpopular, so discretion was essential but Matoili leaked the details to France's Spanish enemies after pocketing his commission once the sale had been concluded, and they made a bid of their own before the French forces could occupy the town. Matoili was kidnapped by the French and thrown into nearby Pignerole in April of 1679. The French took possession of Cassel two years later. George Agar Ellis reached the conclusion that Matoli was the state prisoner commonly referred to as the man in the, the iron mask when he reviewed documents extracted from French archives in the 1820s. His book, published in English in 1826, was translated into French and published in 1830. German historian Wilhelm Brocking came to the same conclusion independently 70 years later. Robert Chambers' Book of Days supports the claim and places Matoli in the Bastille for the last 13 years of his life. Since that time, letters sent by St. Mars, which earlier historians missed, indicate that Matoli was held only at Pignarol and St. Margariti, and was not at Exilis or the Bastille, and therefore it is argued that he can be discounted. Now we come to the next possible person it could be, which is Eustachi Dauga de Cavoy. In his letter to St. Mars announcing the imminent arrival of the prisoner who would become the man in the Iron Mask, Lavoice gave his name as Eustachi Dauga. Historically, this was deemed to be a pseudonym, and a succession of historians therefore attempted to find out the prisoner's real identity. Among them, Maurice Duvier wondered if instead Eustachi Dauga might not be the real name of a person whose life and history could be traced. He therefore combed the archives for surnames such as Dauga, Daugers, Diagur, Diorger, Diorgers, and similar forms. He discovered the family of Francois d'Orger de Cavoy, a captain of Cardinal Richelieu's Guard of Musketeers, who was married to Mary de Sirignan, a lady-in-waiting at the court of Louis XIV's mother, Queen Anne of Austria. Francois and Marie had 11 children, of whom six boys and three girls survived into adulthood. Their third son was named Eustachi, who signed his name as Eustachi Dalgor de Cavoy. He was born on the 30th of August 1637 and baptised on the 18th of February 1639. When his father and two eldest brothers were killed in battle, Eustachi became the nominal head of the family. In his 1932 book, Divio published evidence that this man had been involved in scandalous and embarrassing events, first in 1659, then again in 1665, and that he had also been linked with, and I'm going to butcher this name, Ayafari. Des poisons. Now we come to his disgrace. In April of 1659, Eustachi Dauga de Cavoy and others were invited by the Duke of Vivion to an Easter weekend party at the castle of Rossi in Brie. By all accounts, it was a debauched affair of merrymaking, with the men involved in all sorts of sordid activities, including attacking an elderly man who claimed to be Cardinal Marazin's attorney. It was also rumoured, among other things, that a black mass was enacted and that a pig was baptised as carp in order to allow them to eat pork on Good Friday. When news 
news of these events became public, an inquiry was held and the various perpetrators jailed or exiled. There is no record as to what happened to Dalga de Cavoy, but in 1665, near the Chateau de Saint-Germain in Ley, he allegedly killed a young page boy in a drunken brawl involving the Duc de Fuix. The two men claimed that they'd been provoked by the boy who was drunk, but the fact that the killing took place close to where Louis XIV was staying at the time meant that this crime was deemed a personal affront to the king, and as a result, Dalga de Cavoy was forced to resign his commission. His mother died shortly afterwards, and in her will, written a year earlier, she passed over her eldest surviving sons, Eustache and Armand, leaving the bulk of her estate to their younger brother, Louis. Eustachie was restricted in the amount of money to which he had access, having built up considerable debts and left with barely enough for food and upkeep. Now we come to the affair of the poisons. In his 1932 book, Davio also linked Eustachie Dalga de Cavoy to the affair of the poisons, a notorious scandal of 1677 to 1682, in which people in high places were accused of being involved in black mass and poisonings. An investigation had been launched, but Louis XIV instigated a cover-up when it appeared that his mistress, Madame de Montespan, was involved. The records show that during the inquiry, the investigators were told about a surgeon named Arga who had supplied poisons for a black mass that took place before March of 1668. De Vier became convinced that Dalga de Cavoy, disinherited and short of money, had become Argo, the supplier of poisons, and subsequently Eustache Dalga, the man in the iron mask. In a letter sent by Lavaus to St. Mars on the 10th of July 1680, a few months after Falcott's death in prison, while Eustache Dalga was acting as his valet, the minister adds a note in his own handwriting asking how it was possible that Dalga had made certain objects found in Falcott's pockets, which St. Mars had mentioned in a previous correspondence, now lost, and how he got the drugs necessary to do so. Duvier suggested that Dalga had poisoned Falcott as part of a complex power struggle between Lavaus and his rival Colby. Now we come to Dalga de Cavoy in prison at St. Lazare. In 1953, however, French historian George Mongredian published historical documents confirming that in 1668, Eustache Dalga de Cavoy was already held at the prison St. Lazare's in prison, an asylum run by monks with which many families used in order to imprison their black sheep, and that he was still there in 1680 at the same time that Eustache Dalga, the man in the mask, was in custody in Pignerol, hundreds of miles away in the south. These documents include a letter dated to the 20th of June 1678, full of self-pity sent by Dalga de Cavoy to his sister, the Marquise de Fabreguse, in which he complains about his treatment in prison, where he'd already been held for more than 10 years, and how he was deceived by their brother Louis and by Claric, their brother-in-law and the manager of Louis' estate. Dalga de Cavoy also wrote a second letter, this time to the king, but undated, outlining the same complaints and requesting his freedom. The best the king would do, however, was to send a letter to the head of St. Lazare Lazari on the 17th of August 1678, telling him that M. D. Cavoy should have communication with no one at all, not even with his sister, unless in your presence or in the presence of one of the priests of the mission. The letter was signed by the king in Colbert. A poem written by Louis Henri de Lamoni de Brenin, an inmate in Saint Lazare at the time, indicates that Eustache Dalga de Cavoy died as a result of heavy drinking in the late 1680s. Historians consider all this proof enough that he was not involved in any way with the man in the mask. I am so sorry if I get any of these names wrong, I do apologise. Now we come to the popular culture in this case. 
Many films have been made around the mystery of the man in the iron mask, most notably the 1998 film of the same name starring Leonardo DiCaprio, though others include The Iron Mask, 1929, The Man in the Iron Mask, 1939, and the 1977 British television production starring Richard Chamberlain as the Tertullia character, Prisoner. The Man in the Iron Mask is portrayed as the Duck de Sullen in version of Nullis, Latin for no one, in the first two episodes of the third season of the TV series Vesalis. In the program, he is visited in the Bastille by Philip I, Duke of Orleans, on his search to find men to send to the Americas. Now we come to historical documents and archives on the case. First, we have the history of the Bastille archives. When the Bastille was stormed on July 14th of 1789, the mob were surprised to find only seven prisoners as well as a room full of neatly kept boxes containing documents that had been carefully filed since 1659. These archives held records not only of all the prisoners who had been incarcerated there, but also of all the individuals who had been locked up, banished into exile, or simply tried within the walls of Paris as a result of a lettre de cachette. Throughout the 18th century, archivists had been working zealously at keeping these records in good order, and which, on the eve of the French Revolution, had amounted to hundreds of thousands of documents. As the fortress was being sacked and dismantled, the pillaging lasted for two days, during which documents were burned, torn, thrown from the top of the towers into the moats, and trailed through the mud. Many documents were stolen or taken away by collectors, writers, lawyers, and even by Perry Labrowski, an attaché in the Russian embassy, who sold them to Emperor Alexander I in 1805 when they were deposited at the Hemeritage Palace, and many ended up dispersed throughout France and the rest of Europe. Fortunately, a company of soldiers was posted on the 15th of July to guard the fortress, and in particular to prevent any more of the looting of the archives. On the 16th of July, the Electoral Assembly created a commission assigned to rescue the archives. On arrival at the fortress, they found that many boxes had been empty or destroyed, leaving an enormous pile of papers in a complete state of disorder. During the session on the 24th of July, the Electoral Assembly passed a resolution enjoining citizens to return documents to the Hotel de Valley. Restitutions were numerous, and the surviving documents eventually stored at the city's library, then located at the convent of St. Louis La Culture. On the 22nd of April 1797, Hubert Pascal Amilhon was appointed chief librarian of the Bibliothèque d'Arsenal and obtained a decree that secured the Bastille archive under his care. However, the librarians were also daunted by his, his, this volume of 600,000 documents that they stored there in a back room where they languished for over 40 years. In 1840, Francosis Ravison found a mass of old papers under the floor in his kitchen at the Arsenal Library and realised he had rediscovered the archives of the Bastille, which required a further 50 years of laborious restoration. The documents were numbered and a catalogue was compiled and published as the 20th century was about to dawn. Eventually, the archives of the Bastille were made available for consultation by any visitor to the Arsenal Library in rooms specially fitted up for them. Now we get into the other archives that exist. In addition to the Bibliothèque d'Arsenal, several other archives host historical documents that were consulted by historians researching the enigma of the man in the iron, iron mask. These were the archives of the Foreign Ministry, Archives des Affaires Estrangers, the Archives Nationales, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, the Sainte Genevieve Library, and the Service Historique de la Défense, aka Acanese Archives de la I'm sorry if I get any of that wrong. Now we get into the historians of the man in the iron mask. 
In his historical essay published in two editions in 1965 and 1977 respectively on the subject, French novelist and playwright Marcel Pagnol singled out for the particular praise a number of historians who consulted the archives with the goal of eludicating the enigma of the man in the iron mask. That these people were Joseph Delrot, 1789 to 1847, Marius Topin, 1838 to 1895, Theodore Lung, 1833 to 1896, and Georges Mongredian, 1901 to 1980. These historians arrested under the pseudonym of Eustachi Dalga in 1669 could be the one who died in the Bastille in 1703 and was therefore the only possible candidate for the man in the mask. Although we also pointed out that no documents had yet been found that revealed either the real identity of this prisoner or the cause of his long incarceration, Mongredian's work was significant in that it made it possible to eliminate all the candidates whose vital dates and or life circumstances for the period of 1669 to 1703 were already known to modern historians. Now we get into the modernization of the archives. The National Archives of France has made the original data available online relating to the inventories of the goods and papers of St. Mars. One inventory of 64 pages was drawn up at the Bastille in 1708, the other of 68 pages at the Citadel of St. Marguerite, 1691. These documents had been sought in vain for more than a century and were thought to have been lost. They were discovered in 2015 amongst the 100 million documents of the Minotaur Central des Notaires de Paris. They show that some of the 800 documents in the possession of the jailer St. Mars were analysed after his death. These documents confirmed the reputed averse of St. Mars, who appears to have diverted the funds paid by the king for the prisoner. They also give a description of a cell occupied by the masked prisoner, which contained only a sleeping mat, but no luxuries as was previously thought. To this day, the identity of the man in the mask remains unknown. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or, to, or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. The Simpsons animated TV series has entertained fans with 30 years worth of hilarious antics from Homer Simpson and his family, but the show has also been good at predicting the future.